Hey everyone, this is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, an iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Joey Santos. And I'm Alan Nevins. Well, Joey, we've made it to the end of our first season, and I thought it was a fantastic season at that. So, first of all, thank you for joining me as my co-host. Thank you. It was really an exciting year, and I learned a lot, and I thought we had some really interesting guests on. You know, I agree, and I always live by the adage, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Okay, well, we haven't finished yet, so we're good. But we finished our first season, and I think we finished it better than we went into it. You've been picked on by me so much, (laughs) and you've been so gracious. I don't feel picked on. I know, but the extra gay gray hairs, gay hairs. hairs. Well, those still picking on me. (laughs) Those two, those extra gray hairs, kind of show that I Uh kind of abused you for the last uh, eight months, but. Well, to finish our season, I have to say I'm very, very excited to have this man on. Yeah, he was He's uh, an amazing director. He has been an icon in Hollywood. And, you know, people all over the world know him, know his movies. He's made some of the greatest movies of our time. For those of you who don't recognize all of his movies, you certainly will remember he wrote Scarface. He did not direct Scarface, but he did Wall Street, Natural Born Killers, more recently Snowden, of course, his massive hit Platoon, um, Nixon, Born on the 4th of July. The, 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 the list goes on and on. And he's the perfect guest for our theme this week, which is art imitating life. So let's grab a drink and dive in. So uh, let's move into this episode quickly, only because we did an amazing interview with Oliver Stone. And why don't you tell everybody the drink you made for him and why? Well, uh, he likes a martini and he likes spice. So I tried to create something that was a little refreshing, a little bit different. I based it on almost like a hybrid of a jalapeno margarita and a gin gimlet since he likes gin. So I made simple syrup by infusing jalapeno into it and then fresh lime juice, Hendrix gin, shook it over ice and added a rosemary sprig. And it's beautiful. And it's called the jalapeno gin blossom. Okay, except we told him it was called a spicy gin blossom. Well, isn't a jalapeno spicy? Okay, which name is it? It's, it's a, a spicy, spicy jalapeno gin, gin blossom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know what I think we could do is, in our little catch-me-up is I'm going to talk about Oliver Stone movies only because I had lunch with him about four weeks ago. We had an amazing time. He's so smart, first of all, just a genius at what he does. But since then, I've gone back and watched a bunch of his movies. I started with Platoon only because it was so long ago that I thought, you know, I'm going to watch this. And it was such a big hit for him. And so I watched that. And, you know, these movies really stand up. Mm -hmm. They really do. Last night I watched JFK. And that one is so worth going back to watch only because... That was Costner, wasn't it? Yeah, Kevin. Everybody's in it. The, the, The cast in that movie is amazing. 
I mean, every person that's in that is a, is a, an actor of you know an a a list actor. Right. And when I think the movie came out, you know, the mindset in America is a little different. It was like, oh, this is a conspiracy movie, and a, but now having lived what we've lived through in the last twenty five years, when you watch this movie now, it doesn't seem so far fetched, and it doesn't seem so crazy. It seems very reality based. And well. The last four or five years, we've dealt with nothing but conspiracy theorists. And so when you see who they are and you look at him, he's not a conspiracy. You theorist. can really see the difference who it, what a conspiracy theorist theorist is and what one isn't. So he got falsely accused of that. And most right. people do. But well, I also think we're smarter now. A lot of information's come out in 25 years. So now when you look back at that movie, you're, you're looking at it through different eyes, of mm -hmm. sort of smarter, uh, more informed about we that hope. period. And I would highly recommend people go back and look at that oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And the books, too. You know, we talk about his book during the interview, so I won't do that now, but I also read that. And uh, the other thing is, you know, he wrote Scarface. And he, he, he doesn't, you know, people forget that because he wasn't the director and he, but he wrote that movie and mm -hmm. of course that movie was a big was a big deal and it oh yeah burned into many of our minds because it was one of those movies that you were like wow this is a little different than i'm used to right he really set trends that hadn't been done before you know just so people remember scarface platoon wall street born on the fourth of july the door is an amazing movie amazing movie and amazing performance by val kilmer yeah too. by val kilmer JFK, Natural Born Killers, Nixon. He wrote Evita, which was a big surprise to me. I hadn't remembered that. Any Given Sunday, Alexander W. Snowden, more recently. And there's been a lot of information in um, the press recently about his new you know, upcoming documentary about uh, JFK, which we will talk to him about. Yeah, and that, I think, comes out in November. November 22nd. November. Is that so the I'll day? Be for that. It's the day that he, that was, he shot. was assassinated. So, yeah, so, so whatever that day mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. Well, what do you think about that being our last episode? I'm sad. It's a little sad. I agree. Yeah. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do every week. Well, I shouldn't now. say last episode. It's the close of our season one. Yeah. But still, we have been doing this. A couple of times a week now for the last almost a year. Almost what about a year? Didn't we start in November months? or something? Oh no! Yeah, so yeah we months. did. We started recording them in ten November. Months. Yeah, so that's uh, it's a little weird. It's a little now weird. I understand how people when they've been on TV shows for a long time and suddenly they say your show's over. It's like, oh, what what what, what am I going to do with all my free time? <laughs> I know. Well, they can go to Europe. Well, actually, that's exactly what they do. You're going to Europe next. I am week. going to Europe, which I wouldn't oh, have been able to do. Oh, poor little baby. Not next week. I think it's the following week. Week after. I'm, hey, oh, I deserve a real after. vacation. Yeah, you do. So leave your computer at home. No, I have to bring my computer. How will I work? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> vacation. Bring your, bring your dictionary so you can look it up. I'm going to miss our little uh, weekly little get-togethers. But, you know, it'll give us time to plan some new things. So we'll be busy, and until we come back, we'll be back in no time. Oh, I'm busy. I'm not worried about being you busy. You are busy. So Busy just trying to get through your emails alone. I know, but at least it'll give me some time to sort of do some other things. But I will miss it. And it has been great, and it's, it's gotten us a lot of 
unbelievable feedback. I've heard so many nice things and I want to thank everybody. Yeah. I mean, people from all over the world that I know have been listening and I know they're listening. They say, oh, I just, you know, listened to this episode or I listened to that episode and I loved this. And yeah. the feedback has really been amazing. And the nice thing is, is that while we're not coming in with a new episode every week, we're, they're all stacked. So you can go back if you haven't heard them, go Back and listen to some that you like to hear, or if you liked it, listen to it again. And before you know it, we'll be back with a whole new lineup. And trust me, when we come back, we're going to have some big surprises and even bigger guests. And we made some great friends, and we got to introduce you to some of our close friends that were that guested on our show. So you got to see another side of them, too. And we met some really interesting people, which I like. As you know, my clients, for me, I sort of collect them in a sense yeah. because they're interesting. And I thought we met and interviewed some really fascinating people. Mm -hmm. I agree. Out there doing things that other people are not aware of mm -hmm. that are important and interesting. So I, 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 the whole experience was very positive for me. Yeah. Because we approached it differently than a lot. You know, we didn't focus on just their career. We didn't focus on focus on gossip or relationships or things like that or what they wear. Or We kind of just let them reveal themselves, and you can find another relationship with them. And we kind of brought that out, and I think that's kind of important. Yeah. In season know? two, I thought I would just get a co-host that didn't pick on me so much, and then things would be perfection. Yeah, well, that's true. But you know what? I also had an offer to do my own show where I don't need a co-host, actually. So I could just pick on myself. How's that? You do what you got to do. <laughs> For tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay. A day. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, let's get into it because I'm just so excited. And again, thank you, everybody, for listening. And when we come back, we have Oliver Stone. Well, welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Joey. Nice to meet you as well, Oliver. So I created a cocktail for you. It's based on a gin gimlet. And I use Hendrix, which is my personal favorite, Jim, but I make it spicy. I make a jalapeno syrup, and then I serve it on the rocks with a little fresh rosemary. Wow, sounds fattening. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I do the syrup with agave, so it's a little less. Uh-huh. I have never had agave or, I, you know, I've all had, I like uh, the martinis generally to get me I get loaded off the first martini and the second one puts me puts me in that puts me there. So whenever I touch the martini I like to get, I like the feeling of getting drunk. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, there you go. They're coming over my brain. It's delightful. You don't have to you can kind of stop thinking and relax. Well, Sorry. cheers. Sorry. When I see you next, I'll have Joey fix this for you and I'll bring it to you. Thank you very much. In my youth, I used to drink vodka martinis. Uh, but when I got older, I started to go to gin because I thought it was less toxic for me. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I very rarely drink martinis anymore. I've gotten to like gin. I didn't used to, but I, it's really grown on me. So, uh, Oliver, what, what's interesting is you are our last show of the season. Oh, is it really? I don't know. How long is your season? Well, we've done 36 episodes. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. If you can imagine, we've been doing this almost a year, and we are using you as our season closer. closer. I see. 
Well, you're still badly lit, <laughs> Alan. Uh, That's all right. <laughs> Luckily, the audience, listening audience, can't see me. Yeah, and if he keeps drinking that drink, he'll be really badly lit. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, so I'm the closeout. You're the closeout, and our theme is art imitating life. I see. Art imitating life. I think it's about life imitating art. Imitating art. Well, it depends whose art you're looking at. If you see a lot of movies like me, you fall in love with the movie for a period of time. It's a mood, and you carry it over. When I was younger, I would act out the roles. I mean, I, I was Zorba the Greek for about a week and a half, which is dangerous in, in New York City. <laughs> a lot with of all those dangerous coffee shops, all those Greek coffee shops. You must have been very popular. I loved, yeah, that was a period, yes, yeah. Well, you know why it's art imitating life is, uh, while it's not maybe imitating, it feels to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that many of your movies, you've chosen movies. By the way, let's for our audience, you know, you're a director who has written his movies, directed the movies, produced many of the movies, as opposed to a director for hire where they've just brought somebody and said, hey, here's a great script. Do you want to direct it? A lot of things are conceived of first before the director's brought in. And your movies, many of your movies, most of your movies, I think, were things that came out of your passion for the experience or the subject matter. And uh, so I think you're a lot closer in some ways to your movies than maybe some other directors might be to theirs. Well, I think all directors fall fall into their movies and, and they identify and they, they magnetize them. So it's, you know, but I certainly, in my case, I have very rarely gone outside to a, a script that was sent to me. I've always generated the story or the script or co-written, at least sometimes written the whole thing, but sometimes because I was busy directing or editing, I was get a co-writer involved. But uh, only once, I think, did I, no, twice uh, did I do a film from that came totally from the outside and which I, I did end up working on it, but it was born somewhere else. Well, I want to ask you specifically, let's just start quickly with your Vietnam experience and Platoon, because I, it appears to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but that this is a part of your life that changed you considerably. And with our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, I wanted to to hear a little bit about your insight in in that and how you see this. You know, they did a lot of comparisons on the news with the way we pulled out of Vietnam and the way we pulled out of Afghanistan. And I'm curious to your thoughts on that matter. Well, nothing highly original. I think a lot of the veterans from Vietnam saw this coming. It was a death foretold. I say I don't say that lightly, but it was so obviously a disaster from the get-go. George Bush was overreacting to 9/11, completely overreacting to it, and did everything to make to root to fall into the trap of making enemies around the world by declaring you're either with us or you're against us, which was a stupid thing for any president to say. But that is typical of, pre- of President Bush, who I believe was the worst president we ever had. And I think bar none, including the other clown uh, that followed him. Uh, but uh, I think with Afghanistan, it was deeply, deeply stupid of our leaders to not have, exp- not have understood history and what the Vietnam and the Korean War meant. They were these early encounters right after World War II, where we were so confident and arrogant. We went in thinking we could push around a small Asian nation like that. And 
we ended up becoming, it became a Holocaust. We did push them around. We did bomb them and killed a lot of innocent civilians, a lot. They say McNamara, Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, at one time estimated it was up to three to four million Vietnamese were killed in that war. So it's heavy price. It was ignored and, and never talked about. It was always talked about in terms of an American perspective. We never understood the Asian side of it. My movies, uh, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, were about the American side. But my third movie about Vietnam, Heaven and Earth, which few people saw, was from the Asian perspective, mm-hmm. which is crucial to understand how the civilians are reacting to the war. Because in Afghanistan, it was the same thing. I think the Americans spent more time fighting civilians than they did the real enemy because we couldn't find the enemy. Of course, they were they show up when they want to, like in Vietnam. But we bombed a hell of a lot of places, a hell of a lot. I think the bombing ratio was enormous to what was actually on the ground. And I think we killed a lot of people we don't know about. And we, so it's an ugly, particularly ugly war. And it's the same repeat pattern. And why doesn't anybody learn? Oddly enough, Biden was against the war. It was never really for that war because he remembers Vietnam. God, it's amazing how a collective memory can fail. So whatever you say about my films, I don't think I got my message across to enough people. Although I do think the American people were against the war. And I think, again, it becomes a matter of politics and influencing people and, you know, a lot of lying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't see the American public lashing back in the same way the news media is. I think a lot of Americans are like, hey, we're out. Okay, so we left people behind, but you know, I I think they feel we're out, and that wasn't our problem. Huh. And well, and that's not taking. I think it's more the, but don't you think it's more the media saying, "Oh, how terrible," and politicians saying, "Isn't it awful the way the Democrats pulled out of Afghanistan?" I, I don't think Americans feel that way. Yeah, I, I think most Americans are happy to get the hell out of there, but I do think you have to take responsibility for what you break. Uh, you know, and that's what uh, actually Colin Powell said that to George Bush when he was thinking about going into Iraq. You know, you, you're responsible. And we owe a lot to Afghanistan and Iraq, to the civilians that are killed and the people who worked with us. And a lot of those people, by the way, are not good people. A lot of the people were bad. They were not everyone, but a lot of them were torturers, were police, uh, police who were using the the uh, the invisible shield given them by the United States to pick up people, anybody they wanted to question torture. It's the same as in Iraq. In other words, a lot of people who work with you against the rebellion, the the rebels are are going to be people that are not necessarily good people. And we have to, but I think we still have a responsibility to bring those people here and let them live in our country. We have a lot of criminals in this country, so they can join the they can join the pack. You know, Miami, yeah. Miami yeah. is filled with Cubans who break who broken the law, as is Arizona. So let them come. Let them uh, join. The, we should put them in a special community. If you go to Orange County, there's a lot of Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, who certainly killed a lot of people and tortured a lot of people. There was a horrible war, and they're living very comfortably here inside our under our flag. So. We, we will pretty, and we had Nazis after World War II, a ton of them. So I think we're going to, we're adding up a nice criminal nation here. Yeah, I think, I think there's two states that fit perfectly in Texas, Florida. <laughs> yeah, we'll send them to Texas. They could use that. <laughs> and Florida. <laughs> and well, Florida's already filled with criminals. Yeah, that's true. It's like our Australia. 
<laughs> tax free. <laughs> tax free. Tax free. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. You sound like a very, very right wing conservative. Me? You've moved right in. Yes, you've moved right into my next subject, which which is you got a lot of criticism about your treatment of Vietnam. People, you know, said you were a wild liberal and anti-American. But when you and I had lunch, the last thing I thought was anti-American, what I thought was <laughs> that you were very pro-American and very, you know, very sort of loving of your country. And I'm not quite sure how you got, got misnamed that way. Well, I, I, I love the country I was born in. I've had a good life. I've enjoyed the, the advantages it has brought me. And at the same time, I've been thinking man critical of many of the things we've done to other people in foreign countries mm -hmm. as well as to ourselves here it, it always from from vietnam on i started to wake up i would say to you honestly i was asleep until i was about 30 years old in terms of really mm -hmm. asleep and i think from 30 to 40 which i talk about it in this book i wrote called chasing the light which yeah we're going to move into that next i just because there's a lot of things here about why i changed my ideas about what we were doing. I accept my father was a Republican, a strong one, and a very intelligent man. I respected him very much. And I was guided by him early in my life. But when I came back from Vietnam, you know, I wrote about it in this book in, in detail. And I went to prison. I had a lot of revelations in my life about America. And I wrote here, the lie in our culture was the root of our failure. It's our, and I go into, uh, we lie to ourselves and, and we've confused the ordinary citizen who worries that terrorists are hiding in his barbecue pit or that Russia is subverting our democracy and with insidious forms of hybrid warfare or Chinese economics are eating our lunches with their chopsticks. In my 70 plus years from 1946 to now, the chorus of fear mongering bullshit has never ceased, only grown louder. The joke is on us. We're the clowns. Ha, ha, ha. Another, just one of the paragraphs in here, but it's about the wow. lie, too. The lies we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the book because I want to let everybody know. First of all, it got amazing reviews, amazing reviews, and tons of them. And the book came out, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, in fact, right near the beginning of the pandemic, when nobody knew what was going on. Right. And there was, it wasn't like today where people are going into offices a little bit and they're doing studio things. I mean, everybody was locked down when your book came out. And it still performed well, got amazing reviews, and you should be congratulated on that. Well, thank you, Alan. And j just so they know, that that book really was your life from your first film, up through Wall Street. No, uh, yeah, up to, yes. Yeah, up to Wall Street. And you you barely touch on Wall Street. I read the book, I loved it. And you, you touch on Wall Street a little bit. But now you're talking about doing a second book, which would start with Wall Street and continue up to about 2004, which is the movie Alexander, yes. correct? Yes, that's what I'm thinking now. I haven't written it yet, but laying out the, the story, I was very happy with the, with, the, with Chasing the Light because it ends on the note of a young man who achieves his dream, realizes his dream of making films. And that is, that was the main dream of my life in the in when I was 20 years old, 21, after I'd come back from Vietnam, I wanted to become a filmmaker. And I struggled for those 20 years, 18 years, and 
the success that I had with Platoon is inordinate because it came out of nowhere. It was just a, a little movie, little expectation about the grungy side of the war. People all had been turning it down for years. And uh, the reason was they said it was depressing. I didn't think it was depressing. I think it was revealing that, of the truth of what was going on. I think that the truth itself has a li liberates you. And I don't understand why they were covering it up. We were getting Rambo's, we were getting Chuck Norris films. We were getting a false picture of Vietnam. I was so happy uh, to make Platoon and Salvador, both in the same year. Salvador was about the, our Central American Wars because I got to know that through a friend of mine who wrote, who wrote with me the screenplay of Salvador. And that was another dirty war, much like Vietnam, death squads, all kinds of dirty killing, murder, torture, the whole works. And I got all that out in a sense. And it was a great, I, didn't, I was shocked by the reception. Platoon went around the world like a thunderbolt and it, it dragged Salvador along with it. And as you know, I got an Academy Award and Best Picture. All, all the, the dream come true at 40 years old. Elizabeth Taylor was giving me a kiss. I mean, she was my dream girl. You have to understand that was uh -huh. why did, you can't make the story is over. It's 300 and some pages and it's over. You don't yeah. want to go on. So if you divide a life by story, I think the second story, what happens after you succeed and realize your dream, what happens? Of course, it's quite an interesting, there's setbacks and victories and all kinds of things happen in part two, but essentially my world grows. My view of the world becomes huge, uh, I meet more people and all that. And it's just one thing <laughs> after another, it starts to speed up. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because after that success, of course, and then wall street, now you're in an era where you've got a bunch of big films back to back born on the 4th of July, the doors, JFK. I mean, that goes on and on Nixon, where you are really sort of, you've hit your stride. You're turning out these major movies that are still around today playing constantly. And 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 I assume meeting people that you had not met before sure. because now you're a celebrity in their in their minds, right? Right. How did this change your perspective on the world? You know, because I suspect there's money involved now. You're you're making more money than you did. You have this great success, and now people are treating you differently. How did it switch maybe your your interpretation of the world around you previous to that? It could have gone this way. I could have become a, an asshole. I could have been an <laughs> egomaniac. I could have held out for the biggest amount of salary and fee and percentage of the next movie as I could. None of which happened. <laughs> I was the, you did. I was a bit of a schmuck uh, in the sense that I felt <laughs> an obligation to keep turning out stuff fast because I had struggled so long to become a director, uh, writer, director that. Now that I had a little light, uh, a green light, I could go. And I went fast. I, I didn't hesitate. I, a lot of directors sit for a year or two after an Oscar. I went right into Wall Street mm -hmm. because... Yeah, these are a year apart. Yeah, In fact, the doors of JFK came yeah, out the yeah, same no, year. They really, I was rushing. <laughs> I was rushing before they extinguished me again. I guess I came from an insecure background. It's true. But uh, I really was in a fever rush to, to get things done that were important because I knew, I knew in my gut that this was my shot, that I was given enough power by this, by this situation in a, in a money hungry town that I had to go. And sometimes I made movies that I knew were not going to be, not going to be really commercially. Like for example, 
Wall Street, I had no idea, would be a success either because who, business movies had not been made up to then. There were very few business movies mm-hmm. except from the 1950s. So, you know, you have to think about it that way. That was a risk. And I got to know an entire new world of Wall Street was changing. My father's, that was my father, was a Wall Street broker. I mean, he died in 1985. Now, he never saw the success of either Salvador or Platoon. But his world of Wall Street was changing radically and greed. Young people were making money. That was a big new thing for me. Uh, I had been successful. At, here I was at 40, and I was running into young men who were thir- in their 20s and 30s who were starting to make big, big dollars. That would have been a rarity back in the early, back in the earlier days, a rarity. So the world was changing. Wall Street opened up a whole new vista to me of power. And I learned a lot and it was successful. Thank God. My drink's getting low. So we'll be right back. Tell me about a terrible deal you made in Hollywood. Well, uh, as an anecdote about Wall Street, I guess the, the easiest one that comes to mind is I, it was rough between me and Michael Douglas in the, in the beginning of the movie because Michael had, who's a lovely guy, but he, he was just not ready for the amount of dialogue in this movie that he had to deal with. And he wasn't on top of his lines. So the, the beginning was rough and uh, we had a couple of showdowns. I, I'm going to write about it. And <laughs> then he straightened out and look what happened. Nobody else in the movie got nominated for shit, but uh, yeah. for anything. And Michael. <laughs> shit. You're good. allowed to say shit on our you show. You can say shit. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> and Michael, uh, <laughs> of all things, ends up with a best actor Oscar. That was pretty shocking. And, and there's a lot of other stories in that film, but uh, I got to know all the uh, big shots of that era. And Tom Cruise, do you have anything? Well, that was later, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, do you want to talk about yeah, Tom was originally going to do Wall Street, but I couldn't wait for him because, because of uh, contractual reasons. I had, I had to make the movie then before it was, I didn't want to wait for anybody. So I put Charlie in the movie and, and Michael and, and uh, Martin Sheen was his father and so forth. Uh, Tom was uh, on Born on the Fourth of July, and he was a hard, hard worker. And uh, you know, Tom is a man of great. He's uh, he puts so much pressure on on himself as a person that that partly motivates his drive, his work, why he's so powerful in these movies. And it was a tough movie to make, and I, I went personally. I went through a hell uh, physically for, because of that. And Tom and I. We had moments, but overall, Ron Kovic was there, who was paralyzed and in the chair. And Tom Tom was very loyal and devoted to to Ron. And Ron kept it together for all of us. And we finished the damn movie, but it was so tough with the budget we had and the pressure. I'll tell you a few stories about it, but uh, including the ending. The whole ending was changed after the movie was done. Tom wanted to change the ending, and I think he was right. And I'll write about that when I. All right. Well, you know, it's interesting. He comes off as a perfectionist to me. And I mean, in a good way. Yeah. That he he wants it right. Yeah. One time he said to me, Oliver, don't pressure me. Don't pressure me. I put so much pressure on myself. I don't need this. You know, and I understand why. But I was also could be pressuring people in because I wanted to be sure he could wrestle. (laughs) He was, uh, you know, in his early scenes, he plays a young wrestler in high school. So uh, I wanted to be sure he was practicing his wrestling. <laughs> I gathered that Tom was a wrestler in school, so he knew what he was doing. You know, that kind yeah, of, there you fa- go. he felt it was a false pressure. Yeah. 
Now, uh, and of course, the big one that I'd like to talk about is JFK. And interestingly enough, I sat down and I watched it again last night because it's been a lot of years since I saw it. And while I remember it generally, I don't, I didn't remember it specifically, right? And I was actually, maybe it's because I'm older, maybe because I'm angrier as I get older, I don't know. But as I watched it, I thought, wow, this seems like such a major injustice. And I also think, don't you have a documentary coming about yes, so the we, same subject? Uh, 30 years later than the film, I went back and we did JFK Revisited, which will be coming out in America in November, his, his death day. Uh, and he was killed on a November 22. Uh, it's coming out and I'm very happy. It's been a struggle to get this financed and made. It was not financed in America, it was financed out of England. And we had tremendous success with it at Cannes this year, the festival. We sold all these countries and we just just now uh, are closing out a deal with an American company to get it out there. So it's been a struggle to get this story. There's a resistance to by the official establishment to get this story of an alternate concept of his killing, mm -hmm. an alternate view of it. I have always had this. I've learned this in my life from talking to people that this this is one of the most corrupt cases we've ever had. If a malfeasance of justice, the, the fact that, you know, just it, let's start with the history of it. I'm not going to go into all the details, but the history, it says the history that they teach in school still is that John Lyndon Johnson succeeds uh, John Kennedy and basically carries out his policies. Nothing could be further from the truth. From the truth. Absolute rubbish. Uh, first of all, it's and every foreign country, uh, John Kennedy was a warrior for peace. He was changing things. He was trying to change the balance, the detente, trying to achieve early on a detente with the Soviet Union, also with Cuba. And in Vietnam, he was pulling out without question. He had issued orders to that effect. This has been confirmed again and again by, in books by people who were inside his administration, like Robert McNamara, his Secretary of Defense, and McGeorge Bundy, who was his National Security Advisor, they have written that he was pulling out. Absolutely. Win or lose. Win or lose. Well, we don't get that in their histories. We get this Johnson, he, Kennedy starts the war, Johnson prosecutes it. No, it didn't work that way. Kennedy saw the flaw ahead and, and wanted out and, got, and it was pulling out when he was killed. So that's, I'm not saying that's the reason he got killed. I think the reason he got killed was a bigger reason was that he was changing too much in the world. And the, we have a lot of hardliners in our country, a lot more than you think. Yep. Hardliners, people who really want to kick ass. And they were still, they were there then and they're there still now. They're the ones who are screaming about Vietnam. Well, those are the people, it came from the top. Those are the people who got rid of them. And it was possible to get rid of a president in those days without too many cameras being around and too many iPhones and so forth. Right, right. Well, what was interesting as I watched it, there's that one segment of the movie where they start to interview people or you cut back and forth yeah. to these people and they're talking about what they saw that day. Yeah. And, you know, they're clearly they saw things happening that the Warren Commission then said never happened. And these people were totally ignored. And of course, because it's a film, you're like, OK, how much of this has been exaggerated? Yeah. How much is true? Yeah. Right. Well, that's why I did the documentary. It's it's my legacy, you know, and I was in many, in many quarters. I was made fun of and ridiculed for years as a conspiracy nut and all that. <laughs> I've done my homework and I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy type, but I really believe that there's no question that he was killed 
in an organized conspiracy from emanating from inside our establishment, the CIA, and also above that, they were given permission. That Alan Dulles had been the chief. He'd been fired by Kennedy, and I do think he possibly organized this thing at this with his his. He still had a tremendous amount of influence inside that that organization, and I think he was given permission by even larger forces to go ahead and. These forces knew that Kennedy would win the 64 election and would go on the 68, and he would change a hell of a lot of things. And his brother was in the wings. And so we're talking about a dynasty here. It's like Roosevelt's coming back. That was a nightmare. Roosevelt's coming back. You know, it's going to be 64 to 68, 68 to 72, 72 to 76. Worst comes to worst. Can you imagine? These people were freaking out. You had something to do with the opening of documents from that period? Oh, Is that sure. correct? Well, there's a... Yes, we opened uh, the film achieved something which very, no film ever done, which is a piece of legislation and the creation of an assassination records review board that un declassified 60,000 documents, about 2 million pages. They existed from 1994 to 98. They did a decent job of uncovering, but they had no, they were blocked all the way by CIA who lied to them and. and, and who lied to them. FBI was clumsy, clumsy. I don't exactly. A lot of stuff was still hidden. In Secret Service records were destroyed by the Secret Service when they were requ requested by them. A lot of illegalities were going on. But essentially, there are still about 20,000 documents that are missing that are not been revealed, and they're still classified. That is illegal because the law was stated in, in, by Congress that it had to be declassified. None of them have been. They're still held back. At the last minute, Trump, who was a big talker and a, you know, and a bit of a chicken, he, he backed off that with 12 hours to go. He said he was going to release the dial, everything on 17, 2017, and he backed away at the last minute, pressured by the CIA. So we have still waiting so, on his tax return. Well, there's a lot of people who are involved <laughs> in this. The, the guys like David Atlee Phillips, William Harvey, the George Joinides in, in the Miami station. These people, we, there's a trove of information about them we don't have. Of course, if we, we could really see if they were still existent, those documents, you're going to find out a lot about where these people were and what they were doing. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not waiting on that to happen. I think you can get from my documentary now a pretty good idea of what happened. Even then, even Kennedy, before he was killed, said very clearly, he warned Khrushchev, he said, I am not sure I am in charge of this government. I, I cannot speak for the CIA and I cannot speak for... He was very clear about it. Also, Charles de Gaulle, he said this, because de Gaulle had also been assassination attempts against him. So Kennedy came out very... He was trying to assert control and that was what he was doing in his dying. He was getting rid of the CIA chief, putting in new people, but his people, not enough. He didn't do, go far enough. They were still, too many of the old, the old, the old uh, crew was still there. Yeah. It's a little scary to think that the CIA is kind of doing what they want without any oversight. Ever since that moment, since he was killed, you have not had one American president, one American president that has been able to go up against the military industrial complex and the intelligence agencies and change. It's almost like the American presidents don't control that anymore. I mean, even the flack that Joe Biden, who's I think he's because he's Irish, he may have a little bit of Kennedy in him. Thank And <laughs> frankly, he's older and he can get a, he can do things when you're older that you can't do when you're younger, like Kennedy was 44. Well, Biden, uh, even for taking our troops out of Afghanistan, that a 20 year failure, 
even for that, he's been heavily criticized by the, the, uh, by the military industrial complex. They, they were making a fortune off this, mo- off this picture, off this right. uh, movie. Well, I mean, this, not the movie, this expedition. Off this war. <laughs> yes, yes. I like that you're always thinking about things in terms of movies. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Our presidents have almost become like the queen is in England. Yes, I think that's correct. I think you have a certain limited... Uh, you have a limited horizon and you can do Mm -hmm. things, but you can't do certain things in the foreign policy front or in the intelligence agency front. And that's very scary. That's very, Very. it's like there is a deep, deep government, whatever you want to call it. It's inside and you don't change it. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, do you want to say anything about Nixon? Oh God. uh, (laughs) No, I think it's a great story. I, yeah. You know, I don't judge. I was a dramatist. I, I walk in the shoes of Richard Nixon in the movie. Uh, yeah. And he's a fascinating individual because he was so bifurcated. He had so many complexes. Yeah. And at the same time, he could have been, as Kissinger once said, he could have been a great president if he hadn't right. been engulfed in this paranoia and this hatred of his. So I think it's a beautiful movie. It's one of my best movies, actually. Mm-hmm. It's got a, a lot of yearning in it, a yearning for a better America, a lost America. Well, you know, I, I worked for Irving Lazar, of course. That's where I got my training. Yeah. And I remember, you know, Nixon was a client of his. And one of the first books that I'd ever read of that type when I got to Lazar's is he gave me Nixon's 1999 and also his book, No More Vietnams. And I thought, wow, these are really brilliant books and super interesting. And I thought, this guy is a smart guy. And of course, today I represent David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon Eisenhower. And so I was going through the files and sure enough, there is the contract for the Frost-Nixon interview. Uh And so, you know, I'm I've got mixed feelings about Nixon because I thought he was very smart. And yes, you know, maybe ego and whatever it is that screws people up. But he was a smart guy. Yes, absolutely. And he had a great foreign policy. Certainly he achieved things that never had been done before with a with a detente with China. It's funny because now you could look back and say we should never have opened up China. Well, that's not true. I think it's it's a miracle. China has really come from being almost an 18th century society to what they are now. It's yeah. unbelievable oh, yeah. turnaround and it's, it indicates their intelligence and their, their, uh, they can be a very positive factor in this world, Alan. They could be our partners if we were not. Oh, I agree. I driven agree. by I our agree. ideology. Well, and they are economically. Let's be, let's be real. We're, we're With them, we could solve climate change, which is my next documentary, uh, which is coming up next year, early next year. Oh, great. Great. Well, That'll we be fantastic. That. That's perfect. You know I'm not going to be saying the conventional things. Thank God. I know. Thank well, God, Oliver. Thank God. Oh, thank you, Joey. I seem to have a supporter here. Yes, you do. I've seen all every one of your movies. I've always been a big fan and supporter of you. Thank you. And I always like the way you come right at it with responsibility, honesty, and directness. Bravo. And a lot of people can learn from you and emulate you, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. I appreciate that. I like your partner. <laughs> <laughs> Fed him every line. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Congratulations with everything. Thank, Thank you. you, Oliver. Is there anything you would like to add? Not really. I think uh, buy the book. It's called Chasing the Light. And I Chasing put my heart light. and soul into it. And next Absolutely. one, I'm not going to give you the title, but it's coming up in about two years. 
All right, we'll be looking for that. We look forward to that. And the documentary. Merci beaucoup, monsieur. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Au revoir. Well, it was everything I was hoping it would be. And he's amazing. Such an interesting guy. We've talked about him enough in this episode, so we won't talk about it more. But that was great. Yeah, I totally enjoyed listening to him and uh, interjecting where I could. I think he was so interesting. He's so smart. And yeah, it was great. Great afternoon. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. It does. And the end of this season. Well, for a little bit, folks, it's definitely not going to be the last you'll hear from us. But thank you, which we thanked you before. Your support means a lot, though. Keep in touch. We'll keep you updated on social media, what's happening, who's coming back, what we're doing. Follow us. Yeah. Joey Santos on Facebook, Jojo Boy 13 on Instagram. Also, two guys from Hollywood on Instagram. And we're going to take a much needed break now. Don't worry. We'll We'll talk talk at at you you soon. soon. Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Edited by Marissa Ewing. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.